0: So I, I guess we can just get started. These guys will come in so that we're not losing too much time. But good morning everyone and welcome uh, to our gathering of the saints, gathered by the Lord Jesus Christ, gathering his people from every tribe, people, tongue and nation, and as testimony of his truthfulness that his sheep hear his voice, and we are here as his sheep because we have had the same voice by the Holy Spirit testifying of Christ Jesus, who he is as the Son of God and what he has done to serve us and to bring us to himself. And as he said, he's going to gather all his sheep together into one body, and he's doing just that. And so we may be scattered in our own ways, in our lives, just in different stations of life, but we have one destination, we have one identity, and as just read yesterday in your baptism, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, and if you are of Christ, nothing that I'm going to say today is going to be new, (laughs) it's the same stuff that God has been speaking talking off right from the beginning, and just repeat it in different ways. So we just keep repeating. God is the master of repetition. <laughs> he just repeats things over and over and over and over. So we do the same thing. We repeat things over and over and over until Christ comes. So uh, let us go before the Lord and ask for his blessing upon our service this morning. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you this morning as your people. You know who we are. You formed us. You sustained us. And you have blessed us with the knowledge of Christ. Lord, we pray for the church of Christ, wherever Christ is named according to his gospel. We pray for all the men that have raised who are preaching the gospel across the world. May you continue to sustain them in the truth. Give them encouragement. Provide for them. We pray for all the saints, wherever they are and all the struggles that they're dealing with, struggles of the flesh, and even spiritual wrestlings. We pray for them for strength and for encouragement. We pray, Lord, for these we have gathered this morning. May you cause them to hear, not from me, but from you. May you encourage them. And we thank you just for allowing us to see this day. For many desire to see this day, but they could not. And we thank you that we've seen it still with the faith of Christ. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning one more time. Good to see everybody. The Lord has resurrected us from the dead again. (laughs) That we may come and rejoice in his name and what he has done. For us sinners who go before him and ask for his blessing as we get around to his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come again as your children, needy children, weak, miserable children who need to be reminded of who we are in Christ, the life that is in Christ, hidden in Christ, and later to be revealed. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who is going to be teaching us from the book of Romans, the matter of our salvation. We pray for ears and eyes to hear and to see. We thank you for all again who are gathered to this message, wherever they are, may you be with them. We honor you, glorify you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This will be our first time in two weeks to be preaching from here. The last two messages, I did them from Wisconsin. So it's good to be back home. But it's good to always be talking about Jesus wherever I go. So it's a blessing. Let's go to Romans chapter 4, verses 9 to 15. And I'm going to be reading from the New King James. Romans chapter 4. Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, recorded for us and said, Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. Verse 18. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. And that's the word of the Lord. And our title actually is verse 14. (laughs) Verse 14 is our title. But I will break it down this way the law nullifies both faith and promise. The law nullifies both faith and promise. And number two, Abraham justified before circumcision. And greetings to one and all who name Christ according to his gospel that I'm going to be declaring the next three and a half hours, (laughs) I pray that I find you all abiding in the truth of Christ and we have this morning the Lord has blessed us, graced us with the visit from Brother Josh Buckley and Sister Jordan all the way from the grand canyon state Arizona the home of the straight talk express if you know your politics you know what I'm talking about for the testimony of Christ we are here for the testimony of Christ we had just baptism yesterday and i believe the lord blessed our time together and the baptism is always his testimony of his faith in the person, in the identity and work of Christ, and essentially to say he is he's identifying himself with the person and the work that Christ did, and Christ alone is his plea before God for salvation and What a wonderful testimony that the Lord has given us. And in that, we are saying Christ alone is our righteousness. He is our holiness. He is our everything. Okay? And many thanks also for our Cincinnati sisters. They made it all the way here doing 100 miles per hour, as I know them to do. And we have our beautiful sister, Karen. She is here this morning. The Lord brought us all together that He may speak to us. And may He speak. And many thanks for all the prayers and words of encouragement in the past few weeks to us on account of the recent homegoing of a dear sister, Shingarai. And what a testimony that the Lord has given us to be encouraged in the face of death to come with confidence that death has no more power over us because of Christ. And that really did make things easy for me as a gospel preacher to stand on the truth of Christ. And I pray that people have listened to the messages that I preached there. I did three messages since I learned of her battle with cancer and then her passing. But I must say that as I looked at her on a bed, a dead bed, with just a few more days to go, I kind of admired her. I was like, she is finishing a race. She is about to get done with this world and its issues. And it's going to be in glory very soon. And that also gave me a lot of comfort. And it's just so easy to talk about someone when they have been saved of Christ. It's not as desperate and hopeless as is with a lot of people. So we are here again to talk about our own departure and meeting with our maker and the issues that relate to our meeting with him, the subject of which is called justification. And that is how a sinner is made or declared to be righteous and acceptable by God. Acceptable to him. By a God who is not like us. A God who is holy and righteous and who will not take unclean things into his house. The God who separates the clean from the unclean. When God introduced himself to Israel, he taught them about separating the clean from the unclean because the Lord was in their midst. So that's the matter for which the Lord Jesus was revealed to declare to us and to accomplish for us and to show us the way, the way to the Father, how we ought to approach him because there's only one way of approach. And the gospel that God taught, if you've been listening to any of our messages, I call it the Lazy Boy Gospel. And that for good reasons, the gospel is good news, it means good news, it means a good spill, it's a spilling of good news for lazy boys and girls who are the ungodly, who do not work for their salvation, who do not seek to be accepted by God based on something that they have done or are doing, but only believe and are content that their faith in what God says about Christ is enough for them to stand without blame and above reproach before him. And so I want everybody to see that God only justifies the ungodly people, not the righteous ones. As Jesus said, He came not to serve the righteous people because well men do not need a physician. Okay, so I pray that we only have unwell men and women this morning because we have wonderful news from the great physician. Okay, but many, unfortunately, think they do have some island of righteousness, some ounce of righteousness that is left in them. And that, based on that, God would justify them and accept them. And God would not do that. So God declares a sinner like you and I to be righteous only through the imputation of Christ's righteousness to them. In other words, God declares a person to be righteous only by the righteousness of another. And that means God looks at the ungodly people, his people that he gave to Christ through the works of another, the faithfulness of another, the obedience of another, the righteousness of another. And that is very good news and should be good news to us who are lazy boy theology people (laughs) because that is God's way of doing things. And also, you and I don't have enough time to work enough righteousness that God would accept. And when you are on that deathbed, as I saw our sister she could not do anything for herself. Her feet, for some reason, were very itchy, and she could not even get around to scratch them for some comfort. She had to ask Ella or anybody who was around to help her with that. Now, if you can't even scratch your own feet, what hope do you have to establish your own righteousness? A righteousness that God would accept. So, this is the way, now going to the context of our Romans 4 text. This is what God is teaching us. And he is bringing a figure, a prominent figure, by the name of Abraham, and saying to the Jews who were in his hearing, your father Abraham did not become righteous did not attain salvation by something that he did. Not by good works that he did, but he was declared to be righteous through the free imputation of righteousness. And the word that is translated as free there is without a cause. There was no cause found in Abraham that made God to declare him as righteous. It was outside of Abraham. So in other words, Abraham was served by God's grace alone. He was not as righteous in the flesh as the Jews thought of him. Because if Abraham was accepted, had been accepted by God as righteous by his works, Then he would have had something to boast about, to raise his finger and say, see what goodness I did. See how wonderful I am. God could not help but save me. (laughs) But God says, no, that will not work. There's no room for boasting in grace, nor boasting of any kind in God's presence. And that means any so called gospel that leaves room for boasting is false. Okay? It's false. And God says the same gospel testimony, the same gospel truth was also preached in the life of King David, another of the great patriarchs of Israel. David was a man after God's own heart as a testimony of David as a type of Christ. That is what God is saying with that. David was a type of Christ, a preeminent type of Christ because only David assumed all the three functions that are found in Christ as the king. David ruled both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, is the king of Israel. And he was a mighty warrior. David, he slew Goliath. David was a prophet. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. David, unfortunately or fortunately, also was a priest. And all those three offices... Are occupied and fulfilled by Christ, and David is the only person to ever hold to those offices. And God says, Well, your father David did not become righteous by anything that he did. He had a lot of shenanigans. He murdered the one Uriah, the Hittite, and took his wife, Bathsheba, and for both sins. David was supposed to die, was supposed to be condemned by the law. But somehow David and Bathsheba lived. And how was that even possible when other people in Israel who would have come under such sins would have been stoned to death? And here is how God answered the matter in Second Samuel 12, verse 13. How did David escape the condemnation of death because of his sin? In Second Samuel twelve thirteen, Prophet Nathan, in the conversation, in the back and forth with David, you know the story. Exclaimed, then David exclaimed to Nathan, and said, "I have sinned against the Lord." Nathan replied to David and said, yes, and the Lord has forgiven your sin. You are not going to die. So why did David not die? Because Nathan said, the Lord has forgiven your sin. You are not going to die. And that is God's declaration. And that is God's gospel. And that is how things work. Salvation, righteousness, is God's declaration. It is not conditioned on anything that a person does. Because if God does that, David and Bathsheba must die. So God, as the judge, comes and makes that declaration. End of story. I have forgiven your sin and you shall not die. And you shall not die because God has forgiven you. Say. It pleased him. That's what he liked to do. He delights in showing mercy. So the Lord has forgiven. It's done already. But how far has he forgiven you? Because sometimes we feel like we were only forgiven last week. We were forgiven for the sins that we did when we were 18, 25, 30 years. But somehow this sin that happened two weeks ago, I'm not really sure now. I just, brother, help me. I just don't feel like I've been, I'm saved. What is happening? People are moving away from what God said to what they think should happen. How far has God removed our sins from us? Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's as far as he has removed them. Even though we try to pull back the transgressions from the east and from the west, (laughs) back to us. God says, no, I have removed them As far as the east is from the west, and the east and the west don't ever merge. keeps going that way. Okay? But sin cannot just be forgiven because of who God is. God just does not sweep sin under the carpet. He is holy, just and perfect. So sin has to be forgiven on just grounds when and where payment has been made that satisfies his justice. So what is the basis of the forgiveness of sins? Second Samuel 12, verse 14. Nonetheless, this is God speaking through the prophet Nathan. Because you have treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son who has been born to you will certainly die. And the son born to David and Bathsheba died and must die. Must implies That the death of the son of David was the condition for the justification of David and Bathsheba. The son of David must die. He has to die. And that was prophetic of the death of the Lord Jesus, who is the son of David. Who would come and die to put away the sin of David and Bathsheba, and also our sins. The son of David must die. Because without death, there's no remission of sin. There's no cancellation of sin. And where this death of the son of David has happened, there's satisfaction, there's propitiation of God's justice for all whom he died. So what we need to establish in the matter of our salvation is who has died in our place? Is it the son of Aaron or is it the son of David? Because if the son of David has died, then our sin has been forgiven. It's that simple. Okay? And if the son of David has died, there must needs be justification Of those that were represented by him. The dying of the son of David is the only condition that lifts your condemnation. That's what he looked to. So what happened? The sin of David was not imputed to him. It was not recorded in his account. Yes, he did it. Yes, he felt bad about it. He mourned for it. He got in trouble for it. He got insomnia from it. But it was never in his account. To be used against him by God. It could be used against him by everybody around him, but never by God. So where did it go? It was imputed to his greater son, the Lord Jesus. And that's what God was preaching in that story. Gospel preaching, not moralistic preaching. Because people get offended by David for taking someone's wife because they don't know what they are talking about. And so God used David to bring this foundational doctrine of our salvation, which he then penned in Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2 which Paul then extracted and he migrated that whole psalm, that part of Psalm 32, into Romans 4, and said in verse 7 and 8, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So this is what God actually meant to preach with the story of David and Bathsheba, the blessing of the non-imputation of sin, the kind that makes us mad if someone else would do it, right? And God says, no, don't, don't, don't condemn David because you are no better than him. You are no better than David. So the gospel is saying, on account of the death of the son of David and Bathsheba, who is the Lord Jesus, all your lawless deeds were forgiven. And your sins, every one of them, are covered. And the Lord does not impute sin to you, even though in practice you are still sinning. So if sin is not imputed, What does God put in its place? Because we have an account here. There has to be something in that account. There's no account that's neutral. It's either this account has a sin record or it has righteousness in it. There's no neutral account. So this is what God does and has done. He imputes and has imputed the righteousness of the Son to our accounts. And that means God deals with the ungodly elect only based on non-imputation of their sin and the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so the blessed man or woman is a sinner with no sin record in their book. They live their life in the experience of sin, but when the gospel is revealed to them by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit Spirit comes and says, as with the testimony of Nathan, God has forgiven your sin. It was never put in your account. They are the blessed men. All your sin imputed to Christ. Now Paul continues the discussion with the Jews who were ignorant of this theological understanding and were still arguing for their law keeping and their circumcision, thinking that these are they that commended them before God as righteous. So he develops the testimony of Abraham some more and says, verse 9 of Romans chapter 4. And that means everything that I said was in the introduction. <laughs> verse 9. Does this blessedness, now you have context, the blessedness that we've just been discussing? Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? So Paul then seeks to establish for them and for us the recipients of this blessedness in respect of their relationship with the law of Moses. He asks the question and says, Does this blessedness of not having your sins imputed to your account, is it only confined or restricted to those of the circumcision only? That is, of those who are under the law, or upon the uncircumcised also, that is, the Jews, sorry, the Gentiles, the rest of the world. Is God a respecter of ethnic, religious, and national boundaries in respect of salvation? That's the question. And Paul says, For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. So Paul repeats his theological point and says it was through faith that Abraham received this blessedness. Only through faith as against something that he did. Only through faith he was accounted as righteous before God. Faith not as something that he caused himself But faith is something that was given him by God to receive the truth of who Abraham truly was in Christ. Faith is God-given eyes, spiritual eyes, to behold the person of Christ who is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That is true faith. It's beholding the unseen Christ and believing everything that God says about him. So Abraham was given eyes by God to see Christ and believe. Because Jesus in John 8 is going to say, your father Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. He was glad. Eyes to see and believe that God had accounted righteousness to him. Verse 10, Romans 4. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or... Uncircumcised, not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. So Abraham was accounted as a righteous person before he was circumcised. And it is important to answer that question. It's a very important question because Paul is developing a much much bigger theological point. And it's important that we understand how Abraham was declared to be a righteous person. Because it tells us the cause and condition of righteousness. And that the cause and condition of righteousness is outside of what is done by a man or done to a man. And Paul says, Abraham was accounted as righteous while uncircumcised. Pretty much as a Gentile. And what is the argument? Paul was removing law obedience as the basis or grounds of imputation of righteousness or imputation or the giving of the blessing. It does not come from law. Verse 11. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised. So Paul is saying, there's a cause and effect. Abraham was like God's model house in respect of how he was going to justify sinners, when these builders are building new developments, they first build the model house. And pretty much everything that's going to be built in there is going to be based on the model house. Okay, So Abraham is being given as a model house for the rest of what's going to happen in the development. So in Abraham, we have the exhibit of how both Jew and Gentiles would be served and declared as righteous before God. So Abraham carried a dual testimony and in him both Jew and Gentile intersect. So there you also see that Abraham is a type of Christ because it's in Christ that both Jew and Gentile are made into one. Okay, And this is how. Abraham was justified before he was circumcised as representing the justification of the uncircumcised Gentiles. So God granted him the faith of Christ before his circumcision and purposefully saw. So. Circumcision for him was not the cause of imputation of righteousness but was only a seal, a confirmation of the righteousness that he already possessed. For what purpose? That he might be the father of all those who believe, though they are uncircumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. The father of all those who believe is not saying that we get our Faith or righteousness from Abraham is just saying Abraham is the most representative of the believers. So if we want to see God's dealings with these people, let's look to what he did with Abraham. Okay, so for the Jews, they can look to the to Abraham and say, okay, Father Abraham. For the Gentiles, we also come and say, look to Father Abraham and how God made him righteous. So, God had in view the Gentiles also, in the manner in which He worked the testimony of Abraham, the Gentiles were to be justified apart from the law, apart from the circumcision of the flesh. So, the uncircumcised Gentiles were to be served the same way that Abraham was saved by the free imputation of the righteousness of Christ, and that through faith. And the significance of faith there is making a distinction between something that you do versus something that you do not do. So faith is saying, by God's doing. That's what faith is saying. Was he justified by his own doing, which is works, or by God's own doing? So when it's God's own doing, It's called faith. Okay? Verse 12. Romans 4. And the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. So Paul is giving us a side A and side B of Abraham. If, I'm sure everybody here, you grow up playing records, the vinyls. (laughs) They had side A and side B. So Abraham has a side A and side B and yet is still the one vinyl. (laughs) Okay. So now to the side B of Abraham. His circumcision happened to address Those who had been put under the law of Moses and saying the physical circumcision itself means nothing even though God had some of his elect from those who had been physically circumcised. They could still come and call Abraham their father, but there's more to it. The matter is that those who belong to the side B of Abraham, if they should be considered as righteous before God, as Abraham was, they cannot be looking to their circumcision. They cannot be looking to their own keeping of the commandments. They must walk the steps of faith. That's what the text says. They must walk the steps of faith which Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And that means they must look to Christ. They must not look to Moses. Paul is drawing them away from Mount Sinai. Drawing them away from Moses to Christ. And Paul is saying, Abraham did not look to Mount Sinai for his salvation. He looked to Christ. And you also, if you truly believe in Abraham, you should follow the steps of Abraham and look to Christ. And that means the overriding factor was that Abraham was counted as righteous apart from anything that he did or was done to him, which is in keeping with Paul's opening statement in Romans chapter 4, Which says, verse 1 of Romans 4, What then shall we say that Abraham our father is found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. If Abraham had been justified because of his circumcision, or anything good that he may have done, he would have something to boast about before God. And that's a non-starter. God will not take it. But he was justified freely, as I said, without cause. Being justified through faith is saying, being declared righteous based on nothing that you did or did not do. Because some people think that they are served because they did not do certain sins. Oh, yeah, she was a righteous person. She did not. So the moment that you start talking about she did not, he did not, and building that resume, that resume needs to be torn apart. And, and and be banned. But it's a dangerous resume to have. <laughs> being justified through faith means this. It means being justified by Christ. And because of Christ. It means looking to the justification that Christ Jesus accomplished in his faithfulness, in obedience to God. It means looking to the cross as the place where the transaction of your justification and your acceptance, the forgiveness of your sins, happened. It happened on that cross. That's the transaction. It was between God the Father and the Son. They are the ones who knew what needed to be done. And the Christ, as he is dying, and as he is bleeding, he is signing with his blood, that's the ink that he used, if I would bring it to what we understand as human beings, Christ Jesus was signing the documents of our salvation. The last will and testament is not binding unless it's signed. So Christ Jesus signed it with his own blood. So the transaction happened on Mount Calvary. Okay? So justification before God has nothing to do with what good or bad things you have done. And people will say, and reformed people are notorious for this And it's falsehood. They'll say, oh, if someone has been divorced, they're not saved. That's not the transaction at all. That's not the transaction. People don't understand the matter of divorce. The larger point of divorce is speaking to your relationship with the law. I have a message, maybe two, on that. But it's falsehood. Because we are burdening God's people with falsehood justification is only by the person of Christ. It has nothing to do whether you married and then you got divorced and then you remarried and stuff like that. Of course, there are issues that come from that, but that's not how salvation works, okay And when we talk like this, we begin to bring the offense. <laughs> people become itching. Especially those who think they've done less sins. Especially the acceptable sins. They think they deserve to be justified more than those that they consider to be worse sinners. And that's why when we come and tell people that, oh, by the way, Barabbas was saved. They're like, oh, no, we don't have any record of his faith. Like, because they are foolish. Christ Jesus stood for Barabbas. How did Barabbas get his independence? How did he get his freedom from prison? Because the Christ himself stood in his place. That's how he was fed, set free. Okay. And it's not about you and me looking to find if someone has this faith and that is between God and Christ and his election. The Lord knows all those that are his. And he will lose none of them. He will bring them to faith. He will go look for them. He will send the Holy Spirit to go call every one of them and bring them to Christ. Okay? There are no degrees of justification. You are not justified 90%. It's zero or one. Justified or not justified. The light switch is either on or off. Okay? So you don't get justified one time and then you need to be justified again and then you need to be justified again. But Christ gave one full payment. He perfected forever the sanctified by his one offering of himself. So justification through faith is saying having a standing before God based on what God alone has done or will do in the case of Abraham because Christ had not yet been revealed and we have zero contribution towards our standing before God. And the implication of that is that you cannot lose something that you never put a penny in. You never made an investment in salvation. You did not put your 401k in Christ. You cannot lose anything that you never invested in. The only person who has an investment in your salvation is Christ himself. And he said, I will never lose any of those that were given to me by my father. None can snatch them from my hands and none can snatch from my father who is greater than all he has the investment in your salvation and he will see to it that he loses none of his sheep also you have no password or keys to log into your account of salvation as to empty it Christ is the one who holds the keys You need to access your account and open it and then delete some things from there. You can't. It's an account that you have no access to. So your salvation cannot be lost. We do not keep our salvation. Going to church, praying, giving money, reforming to become a better person is not what keeps you saved. Because that does not serve anyone. The Muslims are always reforming. But they're not saved. A lot of thieves are reforming. And if they don't belong to Christ, they're not saved. So salvation was never entrusted to us to keep. It is a very prideful idea to think that way. Our salvation was entrusted to Christ to keep it as the testator and surety of the covenant. The last will and testament, as I said, was not ours to write. We are only beneficiaries of his last will and testament. And if you know anything about that, there's no child or beneficiary who participates in the writing of that. It's actually hidden from them just in case they decide to kill you. <laughs> so, you were not there when Christ took it upon himself to be your surety, to be your substitute, and to come and accomplish salvation for you. So, Paul says, verse 4 of Romans For, now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace but as debt. To him who works to be justified by God, by the law, or whatever other way in which they are putting effort. God says, well, now it looks like I have to give you salvation as a payout. As a paycheck for all the work that he did. And once you do that, it's not grace anymore. But the problem is he only does it by grace alone. Okay? The acceptable way that is consistent with his grace is through faith in Christ. Faith is for those who do not work for their salvation, those who have faith do not work. God, as I said, cannot be indebted to sinners, cannot be indebted to anyone. He has never been in debt to anybody. If he should deal with you and me in salvation, it shall only be by grace. Because God has never needed anything. If you still remember in Psalm 45, he said, if I needed something to eat, I'll never ask you. You're a bad cook in the first place. And secondly, the cattle on a thousand hills, they're mine. Or they may be registered in your name, but they're mine. To say, I don't need anything from anybody. So if I'm going to serve you, it's going to come from my own good pleasure. My grace. Yeah. Verse 18. Romans 4. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So there's a contrast being given. And so Paul continues his argument and says, when God approached Abraham, With the promise of an heir. And an inheritance to him and his seed. That promise was not through the law. But how? Through the righteousness of believing. Of believing that God is he who would do it all. Do all that was required for the promise to come to him, and he said. And we know the story of Abraham, that he did not have a child at this point of the conversation. He did not have any children. And God comes to him, as we shall learn very soon, and he speaks to him about the matter of the promise. And of course, Abraham has some questions. (laughs) And God is saying, Abraham, I've come to bless you and your seed and through your seed. Because through your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So that's going beyond Isaac. There's another seed who is in view. And the salvation, which is the promise. The salvation is the promise. It is the blessing is a promise of God conditioned on the doing of Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. So the faith of Abraham was not the cause, but proof of the righteousness and loyalty to God as God saw Abraham in Christ. You are only loyal to God in Christ. And there's no other way. You can only be loyal to God. You can only please God through faith in Christ. There's no other way. Okay? So let's go to Genesis 15 and hear this testimony. Genesis 15, beginning at verse 1. Moses records and says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abraham said, Lord God, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring, Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. Abraham then, as I say, did not have a child with Sarah. But he had a faithful servant by the name of Eliezer of Damascus, who was a type of the Holy Spirit. And Abraham said, As things stand, O Lord God, Eliezer is going To have to be my heir. But the Holy Spirit is not the heir of God's promises. So that was not going to work. So here God's correction of the matter. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir. But one who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. The one who comes from Abraham's own body would be the heir of God's promises to Abraham. And this would be Isaac in the immediate vicinity of the story. But being prophetic, looking at the Lord Jesus who is the son of Abraham coming from the body of Abraham. Christ Jesus is the one in view. But he is hidden in the shadow of Isaac. Verse 5. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, So your, so shall your descendants be. If there's light pollution, like where we are here, you don't really get to see much of the beauty of the sky. You have to go to Africa. You have to go to the darkness of Africa and just see how beautiful the skies are. The the stars, almost feel, look like they're just 20 feet away from you. Okay? So God says, look, Abraham, count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And so what was Abraham's response? We're going somewhere, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord and he counted, or accounted to him, he and he accounted to him for righteousness. So that's Genesis 15:6, And that is One of the bedrocks of gospel, faith and teaching, and God's promises in Christ. The imputation of righteousness to a sinner, based on Christ, based on the heir of Abraham. Then he said to him, verse seven, I am the Lord. (laughs) God is always amazing to me. He has introduced himself to Abraham as, I am the Lord. And then seven verses later, he comes back and says, oh, it's like with every line I remind you, and say, oh, I am James. <laughs> I am the Lord who brought you out of the air of the Chaldeans to give you this land to inherit. I am the Lord who brought you out of Baghdad, present day Iraq. That's where this conversation is happening. And I brought you out of the air of the Chaldeans. And that's a gospel statement. The air of the Chaldeans was pagan. It was pagan land. And God says, I am the one who called you out of that place to myself. I brought you out of there. Because sinners have to be brought out of something. You have to be brought by him. That's what God does. I am the Lord. And t- let me tell you what I do. I bring you out of stuff. I bring you out of sin. To this blessing in Christ. Verse 8. And he said, Lord God, that's Abraham. How shall I know that I will inherit how shall I know that I shall be saved? And of course, the church world will start giving you formulas of what you have to do to be saved. Come to our church, <laughs> uh, make a commitment to our church. We have a building project. <laughs> That's the way you know to inherit the promise. Abraham is saying, What is the sign? for me to remind me of your commitment to bless me. Verse 9. So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Essentially to say, bring me a sacrifice from that of the clean animals. Because God's Commitment to bring about his promises is mediated by the God-given sacrifice that is Christ Jesus. God is saying, if you want to see my commitment, look to the sacrifice that I've commanded. That's Christ. Look to Christ. If you want to know that everything that I've said is true, look to the sacrifice. Look to Christ. That is the sacrifice that I have given to guarantee my promise because in him, every promise of God is yes and amen. Verse 10. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other. But he did not cut the beds in two. And When the vultures came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. So wherever there is a telling of the sacrifice of Christ, of the promises of salvation, there are also vouchers to be found. Vouchers are unclean animals and they need to be driven away. They are there to mess the gospel picture. Verse Now when the sun was going down, so we skip to verse Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. So, Abraham and God are having this conversation. And God continues the conversation and says, well, you really want to know some things? I'm going to tell you about the enslavement of your descendants by a foreign nation, Egypt, for 400 years. And also I'm going to tell you about their exodus. And I'm going to tell you what they're going to possess when they leave Egypt. They're going to come out with great possessions. They're going to plunder the Egyptians. I'm going to punish Egypt. Yeah? And I'm going to bring them back to this land where you are, Abram, in the fullness of time. Because right now, the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet come to its full. I know the Amorites are sinning up a storm. I'm going to give them another 400 years before I come and mess with them. (laughs) So Abraham, so God gave Abraham a history of the future. And he can only know the history of the future because of Christ. Otherwise, everybody is ignorant of the future. The history of the future is known through Christ. And so, and also God said to Abraham, you shall be gathered to your fathers in peace. That's amazing to me. That God would say that to Abraham. You're going to be gathered to your fathers in peace. And I, as I was preparing this message, I'm thinking, does that mean Abraham's fathers were also elected, but how could Abraham be gathered to his fathers in peace if the fathers are not in peace? Just had me thinking. You can keep thinking about it, okay? <laughs> but why would God? Why would Abraham go to a people in his death who were condemned? And also, for those who say when someone dies, they just die like a car, they don't go anywhere. That's not true. You are gathered up to somewhere. In the time of Abraham, there was Abraham's bosom, which the Lord Jesus came and taught us that it existed. And we know that when Lazarus, the poor Lazarus died, he was taken by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And Abraham's bosom was the holding place for all the elect who had died before Christ came. They could not go to heaven straight because the payment had not yet been made. But as soon as Christ made the payment, that place was emptied. That's my understanding. Verse 17, let's keep going. You are almost close to be done. Verse 17 of Genesis 15. What is it, 12? And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark that behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So what do we observe? We observe that Abraham did not participate in the cutting or making of that covenant. In other words, God caused a deep sleep to fall upon him so that he would not be bound as to fulfill any terms of God's promises by anything that he would do. God put him to sleep because the covenant that would bring the matter of your salvation and mine is unconditional to us. We have no part to fulfill in that covenant. So God says, no, I'm not going to get you and your foolishness to walk through the carcasses. I'm going to put you into a big, long nap, deep nap. Okay. And that is said, the Abrahamic covenant was unconditional looking into the new covenant that is in the blood of Christ. The new covenant in the blood of Christ is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant was conditioned on God alone. And that is why only the smoking oven and the burning torch passed through the carcasses as pictures of Christ who was binding himself to the fulfillment of these promises when he would come much later. These are the same things the burning torch and the smoking oven would let a guide the children of Israel as they were coming out of Egypt, out of slavery. Those were pictures of Christ Jesus. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13 and 14. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That's why Abraham was knocked out. So that means that the pieces, the burning torch and the smoking oven, those were representing God. He was swearing by himself. Because this was a promise that God alone could bring. Saying, verse 14, surely blessing, I'll bless you. And multiplying, I'll multiply you. So God's promise to serve us was in himself and by himself. And that means it was in Christ. And it was immutable, unchangeable. It could not be changed. That's what God always intended to do. So these people will say, well, salvation is God's backup plan. Jesus, go and save those people. I didn't realize Adam was that bad when I met him. They don't know what they're talking about. Okay. Uh, Adam was revealed to begin to unfold the coming of the promise of salvation to all of God's people. Okay. So Apostle Paul has all this detail in his theological thinking. He knows about all these things And his conclusion then was Romans 4, verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, There's no transgression. This is what Paul is saying. Working away from Abraham and how God promised to bless him. And the fact that Abraham was put to sleep when this promise was made. And then the law was given. The law was given after Egypt on Mount Sinai if those who are of law are heirs to this promise of Abraham by their own obedience where Abraham was put to sleep and then you show up and say, oh, I'm going to get those promises by my own obedience to the law, then faith is made now and void. And the promise of inheritance through Christ is made of no effect. What is that saying? It is saying the promises and blessing of God cannot be given to a sinner based on their own law keeping, based on anything that they do. It is 100% unconditional. Faith is made void. Because the promises do not come from the law. God did not make those promises through the law. Yeah? They are not tied to the law. They are tied to Christ. They are tied to the cross. They are not law plus gospel. But that's one of the blights that we have in much of the teaching, people cannot let go of the law. They think somehow the law brings blessing to them. No, it does not. That's not why it was given. Okay, So, faith and law are separate things. And they have different purposes in salvation history. And once one invokes the law or law obedience, so as to end, to acquire, or to maintain the promises, they are not telling the truth. You cannot maintain this promise by your law keeping. And that means one who claims to be under the law or doing the law, is in denial of God's truth. By claiming to be under the law, Paul says you are nullifying faith. You are denying faith. In other words, you are denying Christ. You are making God's promise of no effect. It cannot come because he never designed for it to come through the law. So the preacher who takes you back to law after they've taken you to Christ, they need to stop preaching. Okay? God's promise is of grace towards us. God's promise is Christ Jesus. Okay? God's promise, God's ultimate promise is Christ himself. Because he is the promised son of Abraham. The seed of Abraham. So it is of his doing alone. And that is why even the coming of Christ, his conception, was of God's doing by the Holy Spirit. It was to be done by God himself. So Abraham was given a long nap probably it felt like he had taken 1,000 milligrams of serotonin. Is that what you take for when you need to sleep some more? A big dose, overdose of sleeping pills. (laughs) And that's amazing to me too, that sleep, to have sleep or no sleep, is God's doing. If God does not desire for you to sleep, you cannot sleep. People say, oh, I, I was so tired I slept. No, you don't sleep because you're tired. You can be so tired and still not sleep. <laughs> it has to be given on a night-by-night basis by him. Okay. So Abraham was put into deep sleep, knocked out, so that he would not get up And mess up the gospel. And many professing Christians need to be given a nap by God. So that they can see the truth of this matter. And not condition eternal matters on the doing of a sinner. You understand me? So law and faith are not partners in your salvation. In the way that they have been presented to you. It is either or. One has to be retired. One has to be sent on vacation. One has to be fired. And Moses was fired. Moses is retired. Galatians 3 verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith. (laughs) But the man who does them shall live by them. The law is not of faith. So the law cannot put you into the promise of salvation. Those who call us anti-law, anti-nomian, did you hear that? The law is not of faith. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. Okay, So those who claim to be doing the commandments of the law, Paul says you shall live by them. And what does that mean? It means you shall seek your justification based on your own keeping of those commandments. So it's not Christ plus law. It's Christ alone or it's law alone. You cannot mix them. Okay, Christ doesn't help you to fill your gaps of your poor performance of the law. He was not given to help you fill the gaps. It's either you take him as he is or he doesn't want to be mixed with anything. Christ does not admit of mixing. He stands alone. So it is impossible then to enter into God's promises by the doing of the law. Galatians 3.18 Remain in Galatians 3. For if the inheritance... If the inheritance. If the blessing. If the promise. If eternal life. If forgiveness of sins. If righteousness. If adoption as sons of God. That's all covered under the inheritance. If the inheritance is of the law. Is of Mount Sinai, is of the Ten Commandments. It is no longer of promise. It is no longer of God's doing. It is no longer of grace. It is no longer of the blood of Christ. It is about you. But God gave it to Abraham by grace, by promise, by Christ. That's the transition. That's the comparison. So salvation is an inheritance. Righteousness is an inheritance and can only be freely given. It is a promise. 100% of God's doing. That's what he taught Abraham. That's what Paul is telling the Jews. That this is how it works. Romans 3, 27 and 28. So knowing all this, That your salvation, your standing before God is by grace alone. Your righteousness, your holiness is by grace alone. Because people say, oh, you're going to get better and better in righteousness. You're going to progressively get better and better. And then you get into the promises. Paul says, no, that opens room for boasting. But where is boasting? It is excluded By what law, by what principle is it of works? Do works exclude your boasting? No, they don't. Works are grounds of boasting, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. You are declared righteous by doing nothing. Lazy boy theology. (laughs) So we are justified not because of our faith. We are justified by the blood of Christ, which faith apprehends. We are justified by the cross of Christ. And at the cross of Christ, that is where the ransom payment was made and accepted by God on your behalf. That's where your reconciliation with God happened. That's where God wrote in your account that you are a righteous person and the shedding of his blood on that rugged tree. And we we'll finish this way by going back to verse 14 and 15 of Romans 4. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. And if I would add something, I would say, and you're still under sin. You're still condemned. Because the law brings about wrath Right? Exactly what I was saying. For where there's no law, there's no transgression. So Paul now is telling us the matter of law and why it is different from faith. The purpose of the law was to condemn. It was to bring about God's wrath. And In that situation then, only faith is consistent with who God is and what he intends to do for blessing for his people. Faith is what is consistent with grace, consistent with Christ alone. Okay, That's what is consistent with God's glory that he won't share with anybody. Faith, only faith, is consistent with that. The law is consistent with bringing God's wrath on you to condemn you. The law is consistent with Mount Sinai, with lightning and thunder and fear. That's the law. It does not bring anything good to you. So the law increases the transgression. And you cannot be a blessed man or woman who approaches God on the basis of law, you have to approach God on the basis of faith, on the basis of Christ, on the basis of the cross, of his blood, of his faithfulness. That's how this thing works. That's Lazy Boy Gospel. Amen, we're done. (laughs) Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. For the many words that have been spoken this morning of how the promise came to Abraham and has come to us by way of Christ who stood for us to accomplish all things for us that we now possess only by faith and not our own attempts to be righteous before you. We thank you for the truth of this matter because knowing our condition now This will be something that we will never be able to do. Uh, Thank you that everything is already made for us. Christ did it all. We are complete in him, accepted in him, justified in him, holy in him. We thank you for this, that you've gathered again to hear this message. Here and those listening online, may you be with them. May you remember, cause them to remember a lot of these things that have been spoken. And grant repentance to those who are still in unbelief about this matter of how God brings his promise. We thank you, Lord. We honor you. In all things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, good people. (laughs) Bye-bye.